Hello and welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm your host and my name is Dr. Leslie Deacon. And I'm your other host and I'm Dr. Sarah Lombe. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello everyone, welcome to the Portal podcast, linking research and practice for social work. I'm Sarah, I'm here with Leslie. Hello. And we've got some great guests with us today. We've got Paula, we've got Darren and we've got Emma. And I'm going to ask each of them in turn to introduce themselves for us. So Paula, if you could start, please. It's Paula McCormack and um, I have a grand title of Executive Lead for the Walls End Children's Community. Uh, do you want me to tell you about yeah, the Children's tell us about Community that. now? Yeah. Uh, children's Community is about six years old. It is one of only two in England. Um, and the idea of a children's community is that it is a, I'll tell you the jargon first, systems change, place-based initiative. (laughs) But essentially what that means is that we work in our place to ensure that there are much better outcomes for children and young people in that place. And we work on the premise that it takes a village to raise a child. So our job is to galvanise that village as much as possible to ensure that everybody in that village knows that they are playing a part in raising children and to raise the consciousness of what that means, that they are role modelling all of the time and children are watching. Um, To support collaboration, better collaboration, to understand how the system is working for families rather than for agencies and to ensure that the voice of families, children, young people is brought into how we design services. Fantastic. So for my sins, I get to work with all the strategic leads in the area. Um, And then I have a colleague, Jill, who works with all the practitioners in the area. Another colleague called Kate, who works with uh, parents. Uh, Another colleague, um, Phil, who works with children and young people and also businesses in the area. And then this gentleman next to me, Dr. (laughs) Darren McGee, who is... A much better title than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which I well, don't remember, but... <laughs> evaluation research. So, uh, sorry, okay. yes, so my name's Darren McGee. work for the Walls and Children's Community, which mm-hmm. is um, which is affiliated with Save the Children. So, uh, kind of employed by them, but we work in Walls End for, for the children's community. Um, and my role's quite diverse, which is why I'm, you know, I find it quite interesting. We do a broad range of types of, of research. You know, it could be working with with um, organisations, youth workers, young people, uh, primary school children, teachers, parents. It's, it's quite a range. It can be on a range of topics as well. So it can be from things like attendance to LGBTQ uh, plus to, you know, mental health. It's it's just, it's very varied in range. So it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, and we get to do some, I think, some really sort of cool research. Yeah, yeah. that's great. So it sounds like the centre and, and the um, work that you do is really research-informed. So it'd be good to hear a bit bit more about that very much yeah Yeah. we can explore that in this conversation I'm sure Um, Emma would you like to introduce yourself as well so mine's probably going to be quite short and sweet mine's my name if (laughs) I can say that (laughs) properly today is Emma Agar Um, I'm an academic tutor at the University of Sunderland and I teach across the social sciences Um, and I'm also a researcher so that's me great Thank you. Thank you, Emma. Um, I think um, we've got a few questions that we'd like to ask you about, but I would like 
to start just by asking you how this collaboration came about. So obviously, um, I know um, Leslie hasn't introduced herself fully today because you already know Leslie, but Leslie was involved in the research project with the yeah. Wars and um, is it the Children's Centre? Sorry, Children's the, Community. Children's Community. Yeah. Um, so how did this come about to begin with, the collaboration and the work that you've done together? So I suppose the starting point is, we were just discussing that, weren't we, Paul? <laughs> was in um, Reg Vardy, which is a building here at the university yeah. where we met for a, a coffee quite a few years ago. Five. Is it five? Wow. Okay. So that's where it started. And, and the former project manager, Jill's now project managing, isn't she? But yeah. it was um, Emma was the former project manager and you yeah. came Paula came to you'd heard about some work I'd done we then arranged to have a coffee and then I remember and, I, and it's been used in a quote recently that you said should we go on this journey together yeah and because <laughs> basically <laughs> I, have a word. I know it was brilliant it's been used in some um advertising tools at the minute that's from Paula and and it really was that which was just some like-minded individuals getting together to think about how can we sort of utilize um research to inform practice and and work out what that might look like so they've been hugely instrumental and collaborative in helping me design my research and the way I'm moving forward with practice research to make research meaningful and to make sure it informs practice and is about practice and it's in practice and so you kind of very much we did this journey of you basically me coming and trying out my model of teaching Mm -hmm. um, with you um, to support obviously the development of research skills and research mindedness and then you kind of have gone on from there and obviously Darren's then become involved in that and we just continued working together so this is a particular piece of research though that we're going to talk about today but we're going to put in the show notes some links to all the other fabulous pieces of research that are going on but do you do you want to say a little bit about how research informs the work that you're doing yeah I mean when when we met it was about story of place as we were calling it um so what we didn't want to do was turn up in Wall's End and think that we knew everything about Wall's End um but we did want we immediately wanted to do some research that would inform what it was that we would concentrate on. There was a theory of change. It had already been developed, but with agencies, not with the community. So we really wanted to understand what it what it was like to live in Wall's End and raise your children in Wall's End and be educated in Wall's End and work in Wall's End. So we commissioned this Story of Place project, but we didn't know how to translate that into direction so we had two people out there doing that research but we didn't know how to get that research back out of them to inform what it was that we were doing which is which is where Leslie came in um but from there really in terms of uh what we do everything that we do is triangulated as much as possible because a system doesn't uh, a system involves such a wide range of partners so we've kind of divided that down into the community which involves families children young people and some of the businesses that operate within the area and then we've got agencies that specifically um, have a focus around children young people and families so that has to be in their work Um, and then we've got um, we've got practitioners that work for those organizations 
that say that they're doing certain things, that have a vision, have objectives, have outcomes and have ways of working. But practitioners who go, yeah, no, that's not quite what we're doing. And I didn't know that we had that vision or I didn't know that we had that outcome or yeah, we're working towards that outcome, but actually above that outcome is this outcome. Or yes, that's how it's supposed to work in practice, but in practice, this is what I do. Or in practice, this is what I would like to do. Which is why I get to work with leaders to learn what the horizon is, what the policy is, what the practice is, etc., and what the objectives are and where the funding sits and what's coming down from government and how that's going to change things. And then Jill, who I mentioned earlier on, she works with the practitioners to find out, well, what's the reality of that? And then Kate and Phil work with children, young people and families to go, yeah, okay, they're not receiving it like that. They don't want it like that. They want it like this. Or they don't even know that that's happening. Or, uh, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. So all of our work is triangulated to... What do leaders tell us? What do practitioners tell us? And what do families tell us? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got Darren that sits in the middle of that triangle and makes sense of all the dribbles that we we bring in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we're going to do any piece of research, it has to have emerged from the three places for us to say that's that's where we're going to go. Yeah, so it's very responsive to the community's needs, isn't it? Incredibly responsive, which is a big challenge because mm-hmm. in terms of having a team of what we are termed to be systems stewards. Oh. So we steward the area. Right. We are the overseers of, of everything that's going on in the area. We're the, we're the glue, if you like, that connects different pieces of the system together. Um, so when a piece of research comes up, we have no master. We can't have a master. Mm. Does that make sense? So, like if we no were one leader on it, do you mean? No, what no. I mean is, if we were funded by, for example, the local authority, there are very particular things that the local authority might want to know. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you mean not led by them? Yeah, but like an agenda. Yes. We can't. We okay. can't. We can't. We have to be autonomous and independent of any of the agencies that operate in that system otherwise we will we will have a bias somewhere along the line mm-hmm. does that make sense so that makes our funding um quite complicated yes <laughs> or very challenging yeah. very challenging mm-hmm. um but uh, a couple of recent examples of of that triangulation is um attendance we had a message come down from save the children that there was a an attendance action alliance commencing and uh, VCSE had been invited onto it, but at a really, really leadership strategic level who knew nothing about what was going on in the ground. So say the children reached out to us and said, tell us what's going on in the ground. So we went out to schools and said, tell us. And they went, wah. <laughs> um, we went out to parents and said, tell us. And they went, wah. We went out to kids and they said, <laughs> Um <laughs> So we thought, right, okay, well, we've got the makings of a piece of research here. There's clearly something going on in our community that isn't sitting right for any party. So let's understand what that's about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how our research mm-hmm. emerges. And then when we do a piece of research, we give it back out to all of those stakeholders. Uh, but those that need to action it, so uh, in, in attendance case, it would be schools or local authority, um, 
so we give that back out to them and we help them to think about what is it that you want to do with any of this mm-hmm. that's Does really that? interesting yeah, yeah. and um, especially I was interested in what you said about all your sort of research ideas and projects emerging from those three areas those three points of the triangle yeah so is that quite formal the way that you do that or do you just pick these things up through the ongoing work that you do and you start to hear things come up and you think oh this needs to be looked at or how how does that emerge from those sources it's a real mix yeah Mm -hmm. we have some very formal um forums if you like so there are 17 schools in wall's end and those 17 schools very much work together and they have what's called a schools partnership and they meet every half term we go along to that and we are an agenda item on that so we listen to everything that's going on in there um what's challenging schools what's what's concerning them what's working for them what's not working for them and which part of the system is not working um and then we take that away and triangulate it has that has that come from anywhere else if it's come from somewhere else then what is it that we could potentially do with that is that a research piece or is that just a collaboration piece so for example uh, early help assessments so this is where um, schools there's there's difficulties with a particular child um, and they know that there needs to be some other support around the child but maybe they're not the support is not the domain of the school if you like but the school are holding that because the child is with them every day um, that's become a major issue for our schools because they're dealing with an awful lot more than they were pre-pandemic and the complexity and intensity of those is is significantly more so they're they're kind of sitting there struggling thinking we're supposed to put a team around the family but we end up being single agency and we're really frustrated so we know we can't fix that problem but what we know is that if we bring some collaboration around it and if we make sure that all of the tools that are available to them are actually in their in their awareness then maybe together they could do things slightly differently or maybe if we understand what's bringing all of the EHAs in we can do a piece of research on that or we can do something else on that so um with that one in particular um Darren designed a, a, a survey to understand the volume the intensity what agencies were sitting around them who was more responsive to others etc and then we pulled a workshop together and invited schools along to those workshops um, along with local authority and and a few other agencies that we knew would be engaged in that process Mm -hmm. Um, and as a result of that there was a very clear action plan but we don't own it we will host it we'll wrap ourselves around it insofar as we have resources to do so um and and we'll just keep holding people account to the actions um but i think we've we've already kind of come to the end of that because a lot has happened as a result of two workshops so it, it works in lots of different ways yeah thank you for going through that um, the reason, obviously, for this series of the podcast is um, we're looking at the issue of, of domestic abuse. And while some people's research has been specifically about that, 
other people that we're speaking to um, have been doing other research and some and it has emerged within that and you guys fall into that category so um, it, it's the research that actually relates to the emergency response grant so obviously people won't necessarily know what that is so could I don't know who wants to field this one whether it would be you Paula or Darren not Emma Emma's like shaking her head at me <laughs> but do you want to tell us a bit about what that is and how that research emerged um you're probably better at actually explaining explaining the grants <laughs> and i'll explain what, how, what okay image. okay um so uh as as darren said earlier on we work for save the children um which is the autonomous independent piece um and that brings with it a huge amount of resource that we can deploy then within the locality and one of those things was pre-pandemic we had what was curled um early top no early years grants mm. uh, and basically they were about supporting the development of better home learning environments um, so you can imagine that for a better home learning environment that might be sleep sleeping arrangements so cots etc uh, it could be about food um, so a space to to have to dine together to be a family together could be about carpets could be about uh, baby equipment it so it's four early years age naught to five um when we hit the pandemic we very quickly uh, adjusted that whole thing to be emergency response grants so uh, recipients no longer needed to be benefit recipients basically in a professional's judgment they were in some kind of hardship or there was a mental health issue that was preventing the home learning environment from working effectively and if you think about the pandemic the home learning environment became everything mm-hmm. yeah um so those grants were um were redirected into these emergency response grants effectively they are a maximum of 340 pound um the only criteria is that the child is is either educated or living in any 28 area which is Wall's End. And that was about it. So what we set out to do was find referral partners that would have that direct contact with those families and would know and be able to identify when a family was in that kind of hardship. Um, and our referral partners are very diverse. We had a we had a number of schools in there that have earlier settings in them. We had uh, a refugee um, agency. We had the domestic abuse um, agency uh, we've also got a, a range of voluntary sector partners in there so we've got 12 referral partners across the area um, the research part of it though I'll let Darren then talk about yeah so I think t- today we've we've given up quite a bit of quite a bit of money to quite a few families don't we? I don't know the exact number it's 421 there we go <laughs> and a, a hundred and eighty thousand pound um so one of the one of the first things we did this was probably maybe about f- four months in something like that we decided to have a conversation with the partners that were that we sort of were helping us deliver these um these grants just to get a sense of how you know understand what these grants were doing for the families but also what it was doing for their relationship with the families because we wanted to see what were these grants actually enabling the partners to to sort of work because a lot of these families uh, what we were hearing were kind of hard to reach families that wouldn't necessarily be 
That god-awful term. <laughs> that horrible <laughs> term, yeah. But, you know, they wouldn't yeah. necessarily be captured in other ways. You know, they wouldn't necessarily be accessing support um, or accessing all the support. I may, may not even know what support's available to them. So it was the, the idea was that these partnerships would help maybe get at families that really needed it that might not get support from other places. Um, and it was really interesting. A lot of the feedback was, was really positive around sort of it had enabled the partner. It had kind of broke down those kind of Mistru- that mistrust that they may have, uh, you know, that sense of authority between um, certain organisations and that mistrust, and it made them kind of feel a bit more that they could get, they could seek that support, and that actually there were these organisations were there to support them. So it was really positive. Um, and it was also kind of at the same time during COVID where uh, schools and things like that were starting to be seen as a little bit more like a source of support because of how they were um, helping families with free school meals and things like that. So that was kind of lining up quite nicely. When we looked at the 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 number of uh, families, and then we looked at the reasons for why the families were being um, sort of put forward for the grant, uh, probably less than half of the um, partners were actually given reasons for us. So we weren't actually certain, you know, what the reasons were, why they were. There's, there were some obvious things that were coming out, like um, majority were single parents, um, Unemployed and or on benefits. That was that was another big one, and also more than one child as well. So many of these people had you know a number of children. And when we looked across the actual country at the other emergency response grants being delivered, actually that that sort of demographic demographic of parent was actually quite consistent. It was quite similar, um, and there was some stuff around domestic violence DV coming out as well. But it, because there wasn't a lot of uh, reasons given, we, we just we weren't certain. So the purpose of this was to maybe you know take a sort of deeper dive look you know have actually a conversation with those recipients of the grants to try and understand what the circumstances were around those families you know why they were being why they were seeking the grant or why they were being put forward for the grant you know why they were that in that situation in the first place and also you know what you know why this grant might be might support them in 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 the way that they wanted so yeah it was, it was really unique because um like i say we, we just didn't have all of that information and even that information that we did have was very you know sometimes just a sentence or two it wasn't really in depth and we didn't really have a good understanding why you know what the the, the contextual um factors were around the family around mm-hmm. those parents that would lead them to the situation where they were, were seeking a grant so it was just to try and clarify and understand a bit better and i think yeah. as a as a children's community um services act very much these days and that and funding is is behind quite a lot of that they act in a responsive manner in a reactive manner we have very little investment in yeah. prevention any longer yeah. um and for us as as systems change agents it's really important that we get this system right around it so unless we understood the deeper roots of of poverty and what le- leads somebody to because some of the comments that we were getting back is 340 quid is like life changing and we really wanted to understand how is 340 pounds so life changing because it doesn't sound like an awful lot of money in some circles and in other circles we were hearing from our partners that people were scared to take that amount of money because it was just so much they didn't they didn't know what to do with it or they were afraid to be in possession of that kind of money so we really wanted to understand what goes behind the behind the behind. Mm-hmm. And also from a systems change perspective, it's it's not just about what organisations are there, but it's also what's missing. So, you know, so what kind of support is actually missing there? Like, what, what you know, if 
what if there was support there you know what could support a family better so that they wouldn't need to seek out these grants yeah. you know obviously yeah. there's going to be consistencies across all areas there's going to be similarities you know universal things but there's also unique things about walls end and we wanted to try and understand you know what services were missing that mm. could support families better I think just thinking to the the podcast at this point that we've recorded, we don't know the order yet. That's going to be repeated in every single podcast. <laughs> I've just realised because we haven't decided on the order. But but the one of the things that's coming out from other people is is that there's research going on that's identifying issues that services are not aware of. And I think what's quite um, important and unique about what you guys are doing is you're make you're you're sharing that. You're identifying those issues and sharing it within the community with the other stakeholders so that that is getting fed back in. Um, and because that's some of the frustration, I think, in, in other research that's going on. Do you think, Sarah? I don't know if you'll look at if that's an agreed face or a, what are you talking no, about, just, Leslie face? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking particularly the conversations um, that we've had with Angie and the conversation we had with Carrie and Louise. I yeah. think that's definitely true, isn't it? That, yeah. That, that loop back. Especially yeah. you're well connected to do that, aren't you, in, in the way that you'll set up? Yeah, and and I go back to that autonomy and independence. Mm-hmm. That that's what that's what enables us to do yes. that because we the, the only skin that we have in the game is better outcomes for children and young people. So mm-hmm. every that's time it. that we get a challenge around. Uh, you know whether we're in competition with anybody whether the research that we're doing is highlighting things that some people don't want to know whatever that is we bring it back to do we all want the best outcomes for children and young people and if the answer is yes well then yeah you you kind of gotta listen yeah so tell tell us a bit about um how you went about this research then um darren because you you said i don't know who who started it off but um I think I'm right in that you started off with a survey. So what did the survey um, look at? What did you find? Well, we did... I don't think we did do a survey with the families. We did. We looked at the... It was the, the data. Yeah, we looked at the data. Okay. So I, I mentioned that before around... And we haven't. We actually haven't had a chance to look at the full data set yet. That is on our list to do. But um, <laughs> initially, when we did look at it, that was one of the things that sort of initiated the, you know, the sort of the idea that we need to maybe explore these issues a bit more around mm-hmm. reasons for why they were seeking the grant because it was actually missing from the yeah. data that we had. Yeah. Um, but the, the initial idea was um, was we'd speak, we'd, we'd try and hopefully get the partners to introduce to families to who would want to speak to us. Um, well, f- well, you actually because you, you did the <laughs> yeah, research. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, fr- from there we'd understand it a little bit better. Um, okay. so, that, so that was that was only really our part in it. Right. I suppose so it's, it's actually me. I think. Yeah. So, so I think it's me. I, I brought it to I brought it to Leslie and said, "This is this is what we want to know. We want to yeah. help yeah. us to understand <laughs> okay. what so we need Leslie, to do." It was one of our little. I was on a journey. I was on a journey with Paula, and I'm just picturing a boat. It was teams. Luckily, actually, it's not. But luckily, we started before. Covid, so there. So I already knew what you looked like. You did know in person. Yeah, you (laughs) knew I was sure. Yes, there's been surprise about people's tallness today because people won't know what we look like though on in podcast terms. Oh, that's true. We're just voices. I always get that. Oh, you're really tall when you are. Yeah, we've got the two two tall people together. (laughs) Sorry, Emma. We're just over here. (laughs) Yes, because Emma hadn't been met in person apart from Auntie. So Emma, you got on board. I'll 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 bring you in. Like, so if I say what happened, because obviously, what's happened. 
happened with this this journey? I feel like I'm on Strictly. Kind <laughs> 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 of journey. You're going to tell us your backstory. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Constantly. Yes, I do feel like that because we have. It's very much been. Um, we. I, I hope because I'm about to say I think we've both got a lot out of it. I hope you have. <laughs> I certainly have. Um, but yes, it, as part of this, it's very much about having these sort of. Um, informal networks to have these conversations and know that you can phone somebody up and say ah right this is happening what what can I do so that's part of the relationship that we have and then I've got more and more involved the more time which I don't have but which I can give and so what happened was I think I, I think it's me that thought that we, they were surveys rather than just you know, it's actually the referral information that yeah, you analysed yeah. so that was my fault for thinking it was a survey <laughs> sorry about that Sarah um, but I got involved at that point which was as, as Darren was saying we've got information here but we don't know why we don't know why and obviously my area in particular is in qualitative research so and very much focused on trying to understand the voice of, of people um, and very much fits with this sort of triangulation that, that Paula mentioned so um, what I looked at so so I was looking to design a piece of research around it and what I've become particularly interested in is this thing's called um, biographical narratives which is basically about letting people tell you their story because I think that what came through in that was you just don't know why there's there's obviously some reasons there behind why people were having to access this support and so with that um, the idea was to try and get some form of representation you know obviously not a representative sample that we could test and everything but more just there's 12 referral agencies can we access families um, in there who would be willing to come and share their their stories and so that's where Emma became involved I did you did so you did the interviews Emma did you I did so I wasn't particularly privy to all of the information from the data analysis that you'd had beforehand um, I was just approached by Leslie who um, kindly offered me the position to do this research and, and do this biographical narrative um, method where I would go out and speak to the people that were happy to do so. And it was a case of literally asking them one question to tell me their stories, anything that was significant throughout their stories as well. So whole life story, start where you want to, finish where you want to. Um, and that was pretty much how this all came about, really. So it was very much in detail, very much getting um, a lot of the information that kind of correlated with the data that I'm sort of hearing more about now. <laughs> um, and obviously the, the major themes that came out, out of it were the domestic violence and, and um, amongst the others. So, yeah. Do you want to tell us, because like, obviously that I think that's what's significant and obviously why we've brought you guys here to, to share this with us. But do you want to tell us a bit more about so what exactly it was Emerge about domestic abuse because I think you used oh I can't find my notes there was a term you indirect. used thank you <laughs> indirect, yeah, indirect indirect domestic violence so yeah. um, this kind of it cropped up a lot and on the face of it you would think well there's been eight years since something's happened that was well considered domestic violence but actually whilst it's not linear there was plenty of things that happened in between but the kind of if you follow the the line of what did occur it's safe to say that 
a lot of it did occur from that because it was either fleeing from another country or fleeing from another place in this country, um, and which would lead to uh, repetitive patterns of meeting other people that were likely to um, be perpetrators of domestic violence um, or even in the case of seeking asylum, not actually being granted... Um, what's the word? Granted, like leave, leave to, to stay, yeah. to stay, yeah. Um, yeah. and that that lasted for um, many, many years. So actually, finally, when they finally got granted, being able to actually um, gather their own possessions off the back of nothing, not being able to work, so you know you haven't even got your own wages to back you up there. Um, nothing um, furniture-wise, nothing educational-wise. So realistically, the only thing. Um, which I, th- I believe is in the quote, is all they had was the clothes that were on their back. Um, and that, I think, again, I say off the face of it, wouldn't necessarily look like it was a direct consequence of the domestic violence that happened eight years beforehand. But it it was the reason that she needed to flee was mm-hmm. because of that. The reason uh, that other people needed to um, relocate in another area up to the northeast was because of that so it might have been a couple of years down the line for other people but it was still a consequence of it and that's the that's the idea of doing that that approach with the stories which is they were identifying it as that's the that's the factor that was leading them to where they were and the difficulties that they were encountering so it was them you weren't asking them any no, questions no I, I deliberately yeah. no no there was nothing for me and and yet it occurred the word domestic violence kind of occurred so often because people in retrospect, in fact, um, we're looking at it going, actually, that, that was. Uh, I've, I've done some research on it now. I'm looking back on it now, and I can see that it was. So, I think what's wonderful about all of this, and and it's a penny drop right now, is that part of the reason why there wasn't, potentially, part of the reason why there wasn't a reason for the application was because, actually, it's not conscious. No. No. It come through that. until yeah. they were actually trying to share their story and then it comes out yeah. as part of that. And so the only thing that we're going to get on the application is the immediate circumstance, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on in the here and now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important part of domestic abuse, isn't it, that often gets ignored, actually that history. So using that biographical approach where you actually do understand people's stories and journeys and where they've come from can reveal a whole lot more about their current circumstances that often doesn't get picked up I think in practice as well as research sometimes because I think often the focus is on what is happening right now mm-hmm. and what do we need to do but actually that time to explore someone's history is really important but often gets missed in different ways for different reasons Did they share with um, you any sort I think because obviously it was um, you know this was COVID-19 specific point in time because obviously that was the shift with these emergency to the emergency response grants was was there something in that that kind of impacted on on their ability to get out of the situations that that they were in um so in a lot of the cases it was um more to do with the social isolation and fact like being isolated from family as well so not being able to actually reach out necessarily for the help that they may have got beforehand um Mm -hmm. the closures of a lot of services as well um that kind of made people kind of sink into themselves i guess i I don't know whether that's a a good phrase of term or what but not reach out i think Mm -hmm. because of all these closures um and 
for a lot of people as well, the main concern was making sure that their children were fed and that their children were clothed and they had a house above, you know, a roof above their heads. So um, whilst not really concerned about their own safety as such, they were more concerned with their children's safety and, and having some form of food and clothing. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering with that, Emma, about like so some of that um, context of that period of time, because one of the other people that we've spoken to is... is taken place at a similar time so we've got a the impact that the pandemic had on keep and on actually um people remaining in domestic abusive situations did they share anything around the sort of challenge they had in getting out or anything like that i would hazard a guess that these were already out there and already out of their situations sorry yes they were because most uh, uh, the few that mentioned it were in the position of either just transitioned into a new house. Right. So um, it had been a case of, in a lot of cases, again, fighting over the whole year, the first year of COVID, to actually get into housing and right. find their own place and support themselves, get the equipment, and starting again from scratch. So they were sort of struggling to get out of those situations at the point where you did the interviews with them, they they would they had they were, got yeah, out yeah it literally yeah. just sort of more or less happened over the year of the first year of covid right okay what were you going to say no I, th- I think this extends beyond covid so this idea that it was you know we heard about it quite a lot and it, i think this is quite um it's not like new information but referral rates for dv did go down during covid that was that consistent across the country what's really interesting um was a piece of research last year showed that referral rates so they looked at previous years versus the covid and they looked at different times of the year and what you actually find is during the summer holiday the summer school summer holidays referral rates drop at a similar rate so the phenomenon that happened during covid actually happens at Every a similar summer. rate each year during the summer holidays so even though this is specific to covid this this piece of research it's still you know it's still applicable i think to things like the school summer holidays where you know the same type of circumstances happen with where you know where the 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 um, mum or dad in some circumstances, you know, are at home for extended periods of time. You know, they have to look after the child. The same types of factors that happen then are still applicable mm. during during the period. Yeah, when I was looking at the literature about it, it was um, becoming quite evident that being at home with children and not necessarily being able to go out to the referral yeah. companies, um, yeah. but if it's by the phone as well, if you're using you know, trying to get onto the, your mobile phone or even using your house phone. It was a case of trying to um, prevent intrusion, so not being caught on the phone, for example, or, yeah. or, or not being... So if you're stuck at home and everyone's at home, including the person that might be committing the abuse, the, the chances of people actually reaching out via telecommunication mm-hmm. is going to be limited yeah. as well. It was, without doubt, limited through that period of time. And to be honest, our schools are telling us that they're they're seeing the consequence of that now, mm. um, with children and young people disclosing now stuff that happened. Yeah, over that period of time, are they disclosing like around domestic abuse? Or, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. From yeah. what I'd seen, there'd been pros and cons to COVID. Sadly, um, some cases where that, in fact, it was actually easier for some people to reach out because it wasn't face to face. So that yeah. kind of pressure of going somewhere and asking for help face to face, being quite intimidating, and people sort of backing off for that reason, um, versus just picking up the phone 
and sort of not necessarily having to stare at somebody and, and you know, feel that pressure. But at the same time, the consequence is, do you have somebody at home with you that is likely to be listening to your telephone call if you're, mm. if you're trying to reach out for help? And I think, you know, what, what you've just raised there is, is also the experience of the referral partners was that to get through the application, it's actually quite an intimate conversation. Um, and it does mean that the referral partner needs to get closer to the family and understand the family circumstances for them to collectively decide where does the where does the fund get spent. Um, and what referral partners did tell us was that that seemed to be easier remotely, mm. whereas the criteria for the early years grants prior to that was a home visit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the only ones that continued any home kind of visit in the latter parts of COVID would have been health visiting teams. In the earlier parts, everybody was remote. Yep. So, yeah. I, and our, our schools initially found that very difficult because they're like, how, how do I even begin that conversation with a family? And will they be insulted because I'm singling them out? But they very quickly got past that to be able to find a way of just engage in a conversation that albeit incredibly intimate was remote I think one of the things that which I've mentioned yet is the uh, so from the start we got the partners together you know maybe once every was it once every two weeks or once was it weekly well, it continues to be monthly yeah um, but initially it was fortnightly so they could share best practice around you know if you had any concerns about how you would approach your family or what you would say. So I feel like that kind of supported that whole process with the referral partners where they could actually uh, mm-hmm. kind of a space to, to to kind of discuss the, you know, what, what they were doing and the kind of barriers or problems they were facing. I'm just um, curious about whether you've, because obviously at the end of this we've had the practice report and everything, and whether that's been shared with any partners or if you've just had any sort of feedback from them around the issue that domestic abuse was was within that so you might that might not come up but I just was curious if it had oddly enough our domestic abuse agency has not referred for quite a while right and part of that is because the houses within the NE28 area are full hmm. ah. um, and but but what we have had is um, young parents leaving care, right? Um, and refugees and the movement around the housing for those two populations has been particularly high. So we have had lots of referrals that way, but less so from domestic abuse. Um, so we've reached out in different ways and we're offering resources in different ways around that. Um, but domestic abuse is one of a number of, and and I think what we learned from this was the complexity of it all, mm. and that domestic abuse was one part of a a, a, a much much yeah. bigger picture. And I you alluded to it earlier on as what happens once you fled, and and what's the next relationship, and how does that pan out, and how how does one pick themselves up financially and restart life. How does one support their children who've been through that situation? And what services are out there for that? Because, again, in this country, we have a huge amount of resources for the immediate aftermath, but very little for the longer term. 
which is why seven years down the line somebody has still been impacted upon it. Um, but also, not even that um, immediate kind of, or long term, it's like, what's preventing it in the first place? What are we doing mm-hmm. to help children and young people understand coercion mm-hmm. properly? Yeah. I know it's within PSHE now to talk about relationships, but how deeply do we do that? And at what stage have we already learned that that's a behaviour that we should perpetuate? I think that links back to um, a podcast episode that we did in the last series with yeah. Nicola and Demi where they'd done some research about young people's understanding of coercion and control as a form of domestic abuse and they found very little understanding mm. basically yeah. was kind of the bottom line I don't know if they're doing some follow up research we need to find so out we should get them on if they're yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah but it's it's very poorly understood I think in that age group from the, from the sounds of it but also across the board I think um, it's difficult to for people to understand or identify when that's happening or for people who are experiencing it to actually have that understanding that what they're experiencing is domestic abuse and 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 in previous research that I've done around this there was um, a, a good cohort of 60 plus women suddenly recognizing that they had been in domestic mm. abuse situations for a lifetime yeah. Yeah. but hadn't recognized it so one really needs to look at the culture of an area culture of a a place yeah to really understand domestic abuse it's funny when we first started um i had lengthy conversations with with police and we talked about domestic abuse and they said we we can give you some money straight away to do something about domestic abuse and it was 50 grand and I, it was a real conflict for me because i thought I could do something, but I don't understand it. So what I'd do would be just a responsive reactive. Mm. Whatever we could design up would be responsive and reactive because if this is deeply ingrained within a culture, then there's significantly more systemic work to be done around it that 50K is not going to touch in lots of ways. Um, and so when you're talking about refugees, that, that abuse is, is not just in the domestic situation. It's, it's probably broader than that. Yeah. And it's how do, how do you... It's no wonder there are what they call serial victims. I don't like the term at all. But the reason why there are is because it's deeply ingrained within the psyche, yeah. within the culture, within the expectations... And if you've gotten that far, then your self-belief, your self-worth, your love of self is is not... There's The internal gauge isn't there, so it's sought externally. Yeah. And systemically, therefore, there's significantly more work that we need to do around this. Mm-hmm. Then, and, and unless that work is ever done, then we're always going to be dealing with refugees and refuges and aftermaths mm-hmm. I think what's coming out from all of these conversations that we're having with different researchers is it's a very complex issue and I think there's a lot of a lot of complexity that overlaps no matter who the victims or survivors are um, but then what we've found in each conversation is that there are sometimes really unique things depending on the group so what you're saying about people who are um, well, we had conversations about people who are migrants, you're talking about people who are claiming asylum and the particular issues that they might experience, but 
um, who were kind of the, the participants in in this study predominantly and what, what were there was there any kind of defining features or unique things that were um, relevant for this group um, the majority were single mothers um, tended to be roughly from around the northeast but had located multiple times to come back to the northeast um trying to think of other demographics really i think a lot of them um had young children multiple children and had children quite young as well i, I don't know whether that sounds offensive even me saying that i don't want this to sound like derogatory but it tended to be that it was young mothers as well but i think that's always like a penalizing to actually say oh you had children young there is there is a correlation between age and, and DVA though it, it does decrease as you get older. It's consistent across the, so that is consistent. They tend and most violent crimes tend to be with younger people. It's just that is just the nature of it. And DVA yeah. is the same. I just don't want anyone to listen to it and think, oh, well, that, that, now that feels like my fault because I had a child young. You know, I it, think it, I think that there's a, there's an issue that it's it's not about saying that these are factors that that led to it. I mean, that you know, just so happens this was a very small group of people so we don't know in yeah. what what way they represent any, anything except that these are really interesting mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. and that's the most important thing I think about the work that you did with these people was to actually give them an opportunity to share and make those they made those links themselves in terms of the stories not about their demographics or anything else it was about the fact that they're in this position and domestic abuse was part of that story so that's I think that's the bit that we kind of take from from what you've done Emma. Could you tell us if if you had any data or um or if you sort of just generally know about this because obviously these were young women who had young children um so what about the impact on the children and, and how did that kind of um or Emma's pulling <laughs> pulling a face about this question yeah yeah I'm assuming you've got something to say. <laughs> so the impact was um huge um literally the consistency of people talking about school dinners or lunches and the hot food or um particularly in one case being warm enough to sleep and having to wrap up in coats and sleep on the floor. Um, the, the the absolute huge impact to the children um, was just, I can't even explain to you. Um, I think the biggest part tended to come down to just being able to afford food. And I think that's where it comes in, where the grant felt like such a huge amount. Because to suddenly have children having to stay at home and be homeschooled and I think one of the quotes was eating me out of house and home Um, there is a case of having to look a bit more savvy around the supermarkets and find things in the reduced hours that are costing you know 40p for a a pasta bolognese or something like that that can try and feed the four of them or something like that Um, so actually that grant supplied absolutely yeah absolutely loads of food Mm. which enabled them to carry on for a bit longer whilst they were struggling so much from either like being homeless or just finding a home 
or um, being made redundant for whatever reason. So, and it remains a theme. Yeah, still today is, yeah. you know, Maslow's hierarchy <laughs> can be <laughs> can be demonised or you know you can love it whatever, but ultimately for those safety yeah. was first. Yeah and getting the roof over their head and then there was the security of we're okay now and we have what we basically need yeah um and this is why it was emergency response grant rather than an early year grant because it was in response to to emergencies the real shame of it is that those are emergencies that continue yeah to exist mm -hmm irrespective of covid yeah and food is a first and foremost and then the second part of that is the structure that was missing for those children so eating them out of house and home was because what else are the children going to do yeah there's no structure in their day they're not going anywhere there's no routine their metabolism is all over the place because they're not moving yeah. in the same way that they were so all of these consequences are now presenting in our schools yeah and nobody's really thinking about the trauma that of children that. have been been through. Mm -hmm. And then if you double down on it, what you're seeing is what you or what you were hearing was the like the immediate of clothing and food and heating and safe roof. But what what we're seeing now is the is the psychological, mental, emotional mm -hmm. impact. Because mm -hmm. you you think about any kind of loss of grief, you deal with that the practical stuff of it first but then the psychological part of it kind of kicks in that's, when the practical later, is done yeah and that's what we're seeing now mm -hmm. um, more so and i think services are more acutely aware of those that have been through those situations yeah in covid i don't i don't know why they're more aware of them but they certainly are more aware of them now and and so they're 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 they've been able to connect those things a little bit better um, that actually children have been seriously traumatised yeah. through COVID. Because that, I mean, I suppose when I'm listening to those that reminded me of the, I think you mentioned one of the participants about saying it was, it was a choice between this toxic environment or living in that poverty. And obviously they chose... Yep, to move and live in poverty. And chose to live in that because that was preferable to the environment they're yep. in because of domestic abuse. But those yes. choices are going to get harder for yeah. people, aren't they? Because, you know, we're now in a cost of living crisis. And yeah. we know that access to kind of financial means is a huge barrier to seeking help or leaving a, a domestic abuse situation. So I think it's going to be compounded by yeah. the situation that we're in now. Well, in one of those cases, somebody stayed with their abuser for nine years and that was because of security and, mm -hmm. and being able to support their children. So I, I can't even imagine what it's got to be like now with the cost yeah. of living crisis on top. I'm just conscious of yeah. our time because we've been talking for an Ooh. hour. I have got one last question just to sort of tie it back together and then if there's anything that you've you've kind of wanted to say but haven't yet, then... then we'll have a chance for that as well um but just in terms of key learning from this res research specifically around the sort of aspect of domestic abuse that came out um have you got any messages particularly for social work but for other agencies as well off off the back of this for me it's that longer term thing mm -hmm. it's it's the before and after 
It's the before. What can we do beforehand to ensure that our children are educated effectively about what a healthy relationship really looks like, sounds like, feels like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, secondly, then it's about um, the longer term consequences. So you might rehouse somebody, but what kind of support is wrapped around the family at that point? Because that that is more than just a house. What what we saw also in in through that period of time was no carpet, and actually our our grants didn't support carpet. So if you think about tummy time for a baby. Mm-hmm where how how is that tummy mm-hmm. time going to occur so poverty is just thinking bigger about poverty uh, and about the systemic ongoing issues that that poverty is perpetuating and if that happens to have been um as a result of domestic abuse what guilt shame everything else that mother or that father is going to take forward mm-hmm. and the ongoing impact that that's going to have for the children etc so in terms of social work it's it's a very now thing to ensure that the safety of the child and the family is there but that safety has to go on much longer than that immediate issue so what are we putting around a family after the aftermath if you like Mm -hmm. so for me i think what this research has done is is made us really think about those systemic issues way beyond the incident or the immediate kind of now I've been rehoused issue that's so important that's a really important piece of learning actually isn't it I thought that was uh, summed up beautifully (laughs) actually (laughs) Paula (laughs) in that case we'll wrap it up thank you very much Paula Darren and Emma for joining us today Um, and we'll see you all next time are you not thanking me I was here. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm not thanking you at all. Thank you. Thank you for hosting. Thanks to everybody. Thank you. Great. All right. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Portal Podcast, linking research and practice for social work with me, Dr. Sarah Lombay. And Dr. Leslie Deacon. And this was funded by the University of Sunderland, edited by Paper Ghosts, and our theme music is called Together We're Stronger by All Music 7. And don't forget that you can find full transcripts of today's podcast and links and extra information in our show notes. So anything you want to follow up from what you've heard today, um, check out there and you should find some useful extra resources. See you all next time. Bye.